It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you as always are your hosts, Stuart Sims and Anthony Campolo. This episode is posted online at www.loosefilter.com, where you will find also the full playlist of all the music uh, featured here, uh, as well as links to where you can listen to and acquire that music, along with some additional uh, links, references that we thought you might enjoy if you find this episode particularly interesting. The idea for this episode uh, was inspired by a program from last May, May of 2018, by the brilliant Russian pianist Daniel Trifonov, who gave a programming at Carnegie Hall that he called Decades. And he wanted to show how writing for the piano evolved through the 20th century, which sparked uh, our idea. And this week we have an episode for you that we're really excited about. We're calling it Continual Reinvention of an Old-Fashioned Machine. Hearing the 20th century through the piano. I am think that this episode is going to have a very broad appeal, and I think that you may be surprised how interesting you find the kind of big thing we're trying to distill down here. We're trying to tackle a real complicated thing and distill it down, which is what happened to music in the 20th century. And for me, I really find this to be some of the most fascinating and interesting work that happened in what we think of as the quote-unquote classical music sphere. And when I was studying classical music history, there was a lot of work that really resonated with me and I thought was fascinating and still compared to now forward looking in a certain in a certain sense because of how it was able to really try and conceptualize what it's going to be and this is a good avenue i think of trying to see that development through one specific form it can be difficult even for somebody like like you just mentioned who specializes in music to follow and and get a hold of everything that happened because not just uh, you know, prior to the 1900s, we had more or less, when you talk about Western musical culture, a stream of development. There was a lot going on in that stream, but it was more or less a unified stream for several hundred yeah, years, had, culturally speaking. We had the orchestra, chamber groups, and vocal groups. There was a pretty simple you know, division between the different spheres that people were composing and working in. And then you had the only other broad kind of type of music and music making, which was in the home, in the village, in the town, folk music, folk what music, we were broadly yep. called. Mm -hmm. Well, so when we turn over into the 20th century, not only artistically does concert music, classical music, like you just said, go in all kinds of different directions, starting with the broad uh, artistic movement that we call modernism. But yeah, across also, all the arts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but also the world explodes several times in multiple different ways through the 1900s, obviously uh, starting in the first half with a couple of world wars with the Great Depression uh, thrown in between. But also the technology that emerges, not just music technology, but mass communication technology, electricity, in general, all of it, all of it creates a third sphere of music making that never existed before popular music. Music concrete. <laughs> <laughs> so recorded music that is then, you know, produced and sold so that uh, many, many people are listening to the same uh, performance, the same song, the same artist, and so on. And that created its whole thing. So as a musician, especially, if you're trying to look at, hey, what happened creatively, 
culturally in music in the last hundred years. You have to ask a more specific question than that to get any sort of sensible answer. Right. But I, especially as a teacher of music, am fascinated by this era because like you said, uh, right off the top, Anthony, this is where our narrative kind of falls apart in the way that we teach music history and the history of the practice, like theory, ear training, things like that falls apart because it goes in so many different directions. So many new tools become available. It's like, like which path are you going to follow in terms of, of teaching? Yeah. And my curriculum just chose to not even try and <laughs> ended right around the 1910s right. with Stravinsky. It was like, well, we're done. Which of course, history's over. Right. Which as you well know, uh, for myself as a professor of music is one of my, my basic criticisms of, of the field that in which I work. But, um, what we decided to do for this episode that I'm really excited about, and I think it's a way that we'll put a focus knob on this that will hopefully uh, step outside of uh, things like taste what your musical taste may be or, or, or what your expectations may be. And I should also add as a little uh, side note, this is not an episode about piano music or the piano uh, repertoire uh, per se. The focus knob that we thought would help you, our listeners, hear what happened, some of what happened in a broad sense in the 20th century, would be to pick a technology that existed before the 1900s started and has remained essentially unchanged through that very dynamic and uh, sometimes quite literally explosive period of time. And uh, for us musicians, that is the piano, an instrument that has long been the focus of, of imagination of uh, musicians of all kinds, and that landed uh, in its current form more or less in the late 1850s, uh, when Steinway Sons uh, and Sons innovated the iron, uh, you know, the harp and, and the overstrung structure and exactly. so forth. So we'll be starting where there's already been a generation where you've had two generations even of people just working with this instrument, they understood it very well, what it could do. Mm -hmm. And we'll start with a piece from 1893 to kind of begin our journey. But again, we're not talking about piano music per se. What we will do with each of these pieces is talk about the ways that we think the composer is conceiving of music, imagining musical and uh, sound and music as an expressive medium. An analog to this approach kind of in microcosm is what I used to do when I was trying to get into uh, a really big body of musical work, like say Motown, I would look at The Temptations and create a playlist that was chronological. And you could hear the progression from the early 60s kind of more doo-wop poppy sound through the 60s electrification, uh, psychedelic phase, and you can track how the culture changed with the music through the music it's and it's a really it was a really fascinating and illuminating experience for me and this is putting that on a, a broad 100 year scale and i'm sure many of you may have been nodding your heads when anthony described uh, his example of the temptations because you may have done that with uh, a style or an artist that you love and you can hear through an artist who continues to do work through their their lives a group of artists it's like people of the beatles yeah you you hopefully you hear an evolution in their work their thought their ideas about their own music mm -hmm. so 
As uh, you already know, I'm sure, and as we mentioned, the piano was around long before any of the composers whose work we're going to uh, feature here uh, were around to write anything. But because it's that constant and because it's it's just this fixed uh, uh, tool, uh, we think that it lay, makes clear, kind of kind of lays the ideas that inform the types of music and how it changes maybe more clear strips away a lot of the complexity and helps yes. helps you really yes. focus on it mm-hmm. exactly okay so with that framing in mind so oh. here is our preamble of what it was right before the turn of the century right so here we have our first piece it's by Johannes Brahms hopefully a musician composer who doesn't need any introduction. This piece is from 1893, late in his life and in career. The Opus 118 from his six uh, pieces for piano. This is number two. Uh, I'm sure many of you will recognize it if you love listening to piano music at all. It is one of the loveliest and most recognizable pieces written for the instrument. Now, the title of this movement, interestingly, is Intermezzo in A Major, which really just says two things. It says... <laughs> kind of what it does and what it's about. So intermezzo meaning in the middle. So in a set of several movements, this is one that is placed to be sort of a light. Transitory. Sort of an intermission, if you will. Intermission, intermezzo. Uh, musically speaking, to be easier to listen to, easier in pace, lighter, uh, not intense, you know, maybe. Or uh, contemplative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and then the second half in a major is not just uh, a label like this is blue, it is, but that also indicates that Brahms' musical thinking, how he decides what notes, how to put them together, and what to do with them, are centered around the idea that this music is organized around the set of seven notes that comprise a major, an a major scale, and that all of these sounds are going to move around that center of gravity, right? Uh, those of you who, who are musicians or have musical training know exactly what I'm talking about, what a key is in musical sense. Those of you who don't, uh, don't worry. Uh, any kind of specific explanation would take way more than a podcast I say that it's the song you listen to or the piece you listen to starts somewhere that feels like it's home travels away from it, exactly. and then comes back to its home. That home is the key center. Exactly. And this piece, Brahms, not only is it right on the title, you'll hear the sounds. You'll hear, we'll play this excerpt, you'll hear that it returns, and it it kind of feels like it has a home base it moves to and comes away from. So this is our starting point where the music is about kind of the structure of the sounds and, uh, and so on. Uh, late Romantic, 1893. This is Brahms' intermezzo in A major. Okay, so that's our frame of reference. That's where we leave 
uh, the 1800s and enter the 1900s. At the same time, uh, as an older Brahms was working, a young Claude Debussy was developing his musical ideas, and some of his works that appeared in 1905, like the work for orchestra La Mer, meaning the sea, remain today hugely influential and have been influential throughout the century, the past century. Uh, But he wrote a set of piano pieces uh, called Image, Images, that really show clearly a shift of how he's thinking about what notes to use and how he's using them. Uh, They're not in a key in that sense, so we wouldn't say it's in a major, and that's not how he's organizing these sounds. He's organizing the sounds here for piano just a little over a decade after Brahms to create the feeling of these images. Trying to create soundscapes that can map to other extrasensory ideas like the the sound of the ocean or the the image of the ocean, the movement of the ocean in musical form. So here is uh, Reflections in the Water. think that really had a big influence for the way people think about music in movies and soundtracks and how you could create a lot more impressionistic sounds this was compared to the impressionistic painters at the time who were blurring images and light and creating trying to depict the the felt experience the the qualia of of seeing these things and being in a place and this was the same idea but with music here's from uh uh the third movement in the set of images. This one's called uh, movement. Just to illustrate further uh, what your description here, Anthony, movement. Something like that would be perfect for Fantasia, you know? It certainly does suggest what he was was trying to, I think. And that's a little bit circular, right? It suggests that because that's where we took kind of original inspiration for that sort of thing. A few decades later, when composers were tasked with actually scoring, writing music that would fit with, uh, with motion. Um, well, what I think is interesting to me about Debussy's work in general, and you hear it in this piece, is that this sort of marks the point where the doors get blown off, conceptually speaking, because the next example we have is by Alban Berg, famous uh, uh, serial and atonal composer. Uh, but in this, this is an early work of his that he just called 
piano sonata. And it's nominally in a key, like the Brahms piece we heard, B minor in this instance. But what you hear through this sonata, it is only one movement, which was unusual. Uh, so it's a short piece, certainly for the title sonatas, normally like, you know, three movements, a very large scale solo work. But you hear him deconstructing the forms that he inherited, like like the patterns that composers wrote in in the yeah, late Yeah, in, in a sense of how someone like James Joyce deconstructed the novel, like with Ulysses. And it's like... At the same time, right? We see these contemporaneous, and which is what modernists were trying and to do. Because they weren't throwing out the rule book so much as ex- expanding a language on on top of it. And like you see painters starting to become visually abstract, uh, the composers didn't want to be tied to these long-established forms, like sonata form in this instance, which uh, you know has just the three basic parts of an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation. Virtually all the symphonies you'd hear from the 1800s, for instance, the first movement is in that three-part structure. It does a thing, then it kind of builds on that thing, then it does the thing again. Exactly, and which narratively makes a lot of sense, and in an abstract medium like music... It's surprisingly hard to actually hear. It and is. Yet, you know, it took me a while. <laughs> uh, but that pattern recognition and, and that, that kind of structural thinking helps music because it's temporal and abstract, it happens in time, and there's nothing you know to look at or hold. Um, it helps it make sense. And so what we hear in this sonata, uh, piano sonata by a very young Alban Berg, is that he is, like you said, I love it, the Joyce comparison is perfect. He's Joyce wrote a novel with Ulysses, but did he? You know, at the end of it, is it still the thing that he was, he deconstructed it so thoroughly, it's almost not the thing anymore. And that's kind of musically, we hear that with Barrick. So here's a chunk of that. And what, what I listen for is that the gestures to me feel romantic. I feel like I should be hearing themes and big passionate cadences but the actual material's not else. there. Yeah. yeah, the notes that fills the that fill those gestures are not what you'd expect. Okay, so here's 1909. We think not a uh, a, a definite on that date of composition, but 1911 was first performance. But we think composed in 1909, piano sonata opus one, Alban Berg. actually fell in love with Berg's music in college and became really obsessed with it for a while because especially his early work just perfectly to me sits on that edge of chaos and order that it's like you said you keep hearing these romantic gestures that you you think should go in a certain way but then all of a sudden the piece just changes and it's you can follow the thread but without quite knowing where the thread's going to go. And that is what turns off a lot of listeners, I think, because they find that frustrating because we all have that expectation that if I can find a thread or something that feels 
narrative or like it's a pattern my brain because our brains are pattern seekers um but then it's frustrated it doesn't go there and it's on purpose though like we mentioned he's deconstructing uh a lot of things that are long-standing practices to see what else you can do what effect will it have to try to get more colors uh on the palette so to speak and I think it's good to listen to if you're someone who has had to study serialism and 12-tone, which we're going to get into, and can be very, very hard to like listen to and, and understand and, and appreciate. So I think you have to hear where these composers were starting from and, and hear this progression to at least understand what, what they're trying to, to get to. I think that they actually were a little more interesting in their earlier periods because they still had a foot in the old world. I think that that's actually a really important thing that the serialism ended up losing. Just a few years later, we jump over to the U.S. Uh, one of our great early experimental composers, Charles Ives, in 1915, wrote one of his most significant works for solo piano, his second piano sonata. Um, Which is important to note, wouldn't have been very well known at the time because he had a later career resurgence where he became more known as a composer, right? Absolutely. And it was because he didn't, want to put the pressure of having to earn a living on his uh, creative work, on his musical composition. So he would go into the city, into New York, and he worked in an insurance company that he founded. Made bank. With a partner, yeah, uh, uh, Courier and Ives, actually. They invented estate planning. But uh, uh, this it allowed Ives to be freely experimental in the ways that I think the time really demanded, right? Berg, right, the composer we just listened to, famously died because he was poor. He didn't, couldn't go to a doctor and, and get uh, treatment for a, a, an infection on his back. And Ives, on the other hand, did very well. And, and that's the death of it, empire it allowed, and right there. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. Boy. There's a, <laughs> yeah, there's a metaphor. Um, so the, uh, 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 it allowed Ives' imagination maybe even more free play than a composer who was presenting their works publicly uh, as they were evolving their voice, especially as younger artists, like you mentioned. So Ives, in 1915, worked on this piano sonata. I mean, he'd been working on it for years, but each movement is based on uh, seminal figures in the transcendentalist uh, movement of uh, thought in literature, right? Uh, the Alcotts, uh, uh, Rafe Waldo Emerson, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Walt Whitman, and they so They probably on. made you read them in high school. Yeah, and if you haven't read any of these writers, I, I, I found especially Emerson and Walt Whitman's poetry. For me, uh, Emerson's lectures and uh, some of his sermons are really thoughtful and challenging and meaningful to go back as an adult and read. So it was oh, a side incredible. recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very spiritual. If you haven't gone back to them, they uh, really are, there's a lot there uh, that still will reward, I think. And that is hard to get when you're in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it's did not, and my brain wouldn't even have needed to go to those places for some of it. Uh, but but do do now, and thank goodness we still have it. But uh Ives grew up in that region and was fascinated by the fact that a lot of these folks literally lived on the same street, in the same block. It was this 20-year period where they would go mostly over the Alcotts, the family you know, uh, uh, home with all their kids running around, and sit and talk. And, and a lot of these ideas, like Salon, um, I'm sorry, cafe culture over in Vienna, speaking mm -hmm. of death of an empire, early 1900s in Vienna, uh, this were these were the places in the young United States where folks would gather and exchange ideas and so on. And so Ives, 
his twist as a modernist was he wasn't thinking about keys. He wasn't even really thinking about the notes. He went conceptually even further to a sort of meta place. Yeah, you kind of think more like uh, chunks of music ideas as like memes almost. You're going to have to explain that one to me. So in the sense that he would think of like there'd be, this would be a tune that would go with like a marching band. And then you'd have like another tune that would be a separate marching band. And the idea of how you can like uh, mash and you them would together. Just smash yeah, them. Yeah, I see what you're saying. These kind of atomic yeah. units of musical ideas. Right. And that, that you could throw them into the music you were making because those are objects that refer to uh-huh. have cultural references. Right. Yep. And so rather than totally shooing, moving away from, like say tonal practice and and writing only atonal music or thinking in terms of systems. Mm -hmm. He thought, now that I get it, that's a good analogy actually. He thought that these are little bits of culture musically that I can put in that people will find familiar that may bridge the gap to the more difficult, larger conceptual things I'm doing with this piece as a whole. Yeah, which is that also just great, the egalitarian American mindset of how do we take all this stuff and not necessarily homogenize it, but synthesize it and make it accessible Mm -hmm. while making a thing of substance and depth that that's the kind of thing you're trying to make exactly Mm -hmm. so what ives does is he imagines a stream of consciousness kind of a uh, being john malkovich thing what would it feel like right to be in that living room of the Alcots. And so he uses uh, the opening theme of Beethoven 5, which was sort of popular sheet music of the middle 1800s, um, as a, a reference point where, you know, Mama Alcott would have been playing it on the piano, on her little spinet piano. And the way that uh, uh, Bronson Alcott wrote about his family gathering that Ives read, uh, uh, he just tries to create not only a scene in the sense that we would think of maybe a soundtrack or something, but also feeling of in the way that Debussy was going for as a sort of symbolist composer. Yeah, give you a presence within some sort of musical space that can have different interplays that wouldn't necessarily fit together, but they're just things that exist out in the world. And so if you're someone who is open-minded and wants to discover all the different facets of music, you you realize around this time with mass communication, how much access to to media there was that you could start building your own individual artistic language yourself. Almost everyone could do that just by taking these bits of all these things they'd heard throughout their life and start putting them together. Not just build their own, but in a way that might be accessible to someone else. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is from the third movement of this four-movement sonata, the con- so-called Concord Sonata by Charles Ives. Uh, the movement's title is The Alcots. The Alcots.
Moving ahead into the next decade, into the 1920s, we have... Roaring 20s. The Roaring 20s. We actually have three examples for you because at this point, things really start to change dynamically quickly. Yeah, because now we're through the, the First World War. So the, we're the, into the death of modernity. Happens, we're into yeah, the modern age. Yeah, pretty, pretty conclusive, pretty conclusively. And uh, early in the 1920s, 1922, an American maverick composer who lived in uh, Paris and worked in Europe a lot, also named George Antile, very experimental composer, wrote a piece that he called a jazz sonata. And it's interesting to me uh, in a couple of ways. The first is obviously, and as you might have guessed from the title, there's an infusion of popular musical culture into the kinds of sounds he's making as a composer of avant-garde you know, uh, concert music. But also, he had a fascination with processes, especially like computational processes, being able to link mechanical processes. He's a, he's a technologist also. And, and feed them information exactly. And so he tried to, he created pieces where he tried to link p- player pianos together and so on. But you hear him really using the piano also as a percussive instrument, which is kind of a new way to approach that instrument. And and we're going to hear it more and more as we go through the 1900s. But I thought that as early as 1922, we hear someone like George Antile not only scooping out of popular music, which has hardly even existed for any time, but also expanding the ways that you think of the piano as an instrument. He realized before James Brown that everything's a drum. got drunk (laughs) or like the devil wandered into a saloon and started playing the piano right yeah uh so there's there's just so much there if you don't know uh george antile's work a-n-t-h-e-i-l i i I encourage you to check it out uh during the same century bela bartok was doing incredibly uh, innovative things musically he is considered one of our earliest what we now would call ethnomusicologist actually going out into the field and trying to rescue some of these non uh, notated musical traditions which would be you know, all human music until recently uh, but some that that were not uh, written notated traditions uh, uh, saving them recording them uh, writing them down and using them in his music but also conceptually, you can tell that he was in a space where he was thinking about how do I make this music come to life and create feeling of or description of. Yeah, and how do I study this uh, musical practice that may only exist in a in a local community but, but has things about it that are distinct? And what is it that makes it distinct and how, how do you capture that and then bring it into your own art? And so like with Antile and like with Gershwin, George Gershwin, who, whom we will hear a little of his music in just a second, 
fuse that with his really uh, sort of highfalutin academic practice, conceptually speaking, as a composer, which was a, a very sophisticated, uh, for those of you who know your music theory, uh, pitch class set-based approach to uh, choosing his notes, like his what we would call his harmonic language. But all of that aside, if you don't hear any of that, this piece from 1926, uh, Out of Doors, is really descriptive, I think, and evocative. We'll play two quick bits. The first one is from a movement called With Drum and Pipes. This next excerpt is from a movement called Musettes. composer that I really fell in love with in school because you know it's doesn't sound like any other classical music before it that if you had been studying it but it still like resonates with you and has such a cool kind of personality to it that I really like about the the ways they were able to make something that is really weird and super super technical but still can you know make you laugh and and does like clever stuff it is a genius uh contextualizing device, if you will, even though I don't think he thought of it that way, to take what would have been recognizable folk rhythms and like patterns of accent and emphasis and syncopation and combine them with a really sophisticated pitch language, right? Mm -hmm. You may be able to hear that similar kind of process infusion a little more clearly if we do the U.S. version of it. 1926, George Gershwin wrote a set of three preludes for piano in which he fused a highly sophisticated harmonic language um, and what I think you'll hear is a, a, a real evident popular music, American popular music, lyric, and rhythmic sensibility. So this is a little bit from the first of those three preludes by George Gershwin.
if I was alive in the 20s and was a classical musician, how could you not do that? Like, because jazz would have been so ubiquitous in, in the culture. You would, have, you would hear it everywhere and everyone would love it. And you'd be like, man, there's a lot of really cool stuff here, but I could do it like way better than these guys. <laughs> I think the, the answer is probably that it was hard for various establishments, uh, be they jazz, popular music establishments or classical, whatever, to accept it because they don't like, what are you doing? Like, so if it really is new, if it's groundbreaking in that sense. Um, and also all the cultural things and, and, and all that that comes into play. Uh, and also audiences. Right. Finding an audience uh, might be difficult. I like I wanted to play also an excerpt from the second of these three preludes, because to me, I hear such a strong influence of Debussy and the idea of evoking the feeling of being like I feel like I'm out in the hot, sultry, like humid uh, southern summer heat, you know, sitting on the porch, maybe with a fan and having a hopefully ice cold glass of lemonade or something. I don't know. But the, the sort of languid uh, uh, nature of it to me, uh, the, the, the composer that I draw the closest parallel to is Debussy, but the sounds themselves are totally blues. They're so, yeah. they're so 100% blues and, and a little bit jazz in terms of sophisticated harmonies. But this is a little bit from the second of Gershwin's three preludes. I totally hear the Debussy because it has that floaty quality. That's how I always would describe it. How it, I imagine like, you know, uh, like leaves floating down like slowly and kind of, you know, with the air and waving around. That's it evokes that really, really, yeah, like you said, languid. And yet sounds unmistakably American as music, right? There's also the, the popular notes. stylistic. Exactly. Uh, uh, a few years after, 1930, we have an early piece from Aaron Copeland, his Piano Variations. Very famous piece, very standard repertoire sort of piece for concert pianists if they cover this kind of repertoire. Uh, but I think shows the same struggle that we heard in Alban Berg's uh, Piano Sonata, that he is trying to work within the kinds of techniques that are going on academically, that classical composers are doing, serialized things. But you hear nascent in his voice that populist sound wanting to pop out mm -hmm. a sense the syncopation in the rhythm uh, heavily influenced by ragtime and early jazz but also the big open perfect intervals those fourths and fifths to me that it's 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 like poking and wanting to emerge from this more crunchy modernist uh rendering that it is in this piece uh makes for an interesting mix this is 1930 aaron copeland piano variation
Another interesting thing, listening to that excerpt that occurs to me as you start to hear something that's going to become, over the next few decades here in the 1900s, a very big deal as we go through this playlist, which is uh, exploiting, exploring, and using uh, the different acoustical, the piano is an acoustical space. It's resonance and the the sense of scale that you can create. It, like in, in the excerpt from the piano variations we just heard, he was alternating these gestures that not only were close together in terms of pitch, like tone clusters, uh, they were scored. The notes were close together on the keyboard. And then he would move the notes very far apart on the keyboard, right? Several octaves in between them. So you felt close together and close up, far apart and further away. He started exploring the sense of space. And the actual physicality create. of the instrument. Exactly. And in every example now, I think that's going to be some aspect of what we listen to, no matter how different the music is. Uh, uh, and here already in 1930, we hear him exploring that idea. Uh, it goes a little further. John Cage, 1938, just a few years later, John Cage to the generation following Aaron Copland, uh, from the generation following Copland, I think, and then the next generation of composers after, was also influential in a seminal kind of way. Another early work of his for piano, another early work, I should say, Metamorphosis, 1938. This piece was written likely not long after he finished studying with Arnold Schoenberg himself when Schoenberg was teaching at UCLA, spent the last part, portion of his life in the U.S., and probably would have used Schoenberg's Harmony Lara, the theory of harmony, as his textbook. So would have had a rigorous and thorough understanding of tonal practice all the way through the late Romantic, how it was broken down. And here we have one of our great American exper experimentalists trying to figure out, well, now what? And so one of the ways I would describe this to someone who doesn't know theory at all and would have a really hard time trying to get a handle on serialism. I would describe it as kind of a comparison to like classical mechanics and then Einstein's relativity. It was a much deeper theoretical, almost mathematical exploration of what is pitch and key center like we were talking about. And they took it to a point that I think went into nonsense <laughs> almost almost yeah because they they yeah yeah exactly what are the relationships between the pitches right uh so here this first example is from the first movement of the metamorphosis 1938 john cage And then the second clip is from the fourth movement. And 
nerd stuff, so I'm always into this. But I think most people can only really take this kind of stuff in very small doses, if at all. And just it sounds like nonsense to most people. The way that I've made found something like that to be more accessible is imagine a Looney Tunes cartoon going with it, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a kineticism and and uh, a dramaticism to this music, right? So it sounds like nonsense if you're waiting for it to be in a key, to find a home base, to have a feel like some point of return, you know, in that sense. If you can let go of that and hear each gesture as like its own word or bit of speech, mana, 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 mana. And then another voice goes, and then you've got a conversation of these two little gestures running around the piano. And, you know, depending on what register he writes them in, they, they sound louder or softer, which to me sort of feels closer or far away. So he creates almost a, a sound design or uh, approach before we would have been able to think of this is 1938. So this is all, you know, these ideas are all, they're coming from the people who helped seed them in the first place, who helped fertilize the soil. It's what the avant-garde when it's effective does. Um, so you, you go forward a generation or so, and you, you'll hear these ideas popping up all over the place in more popular, uh, manifestations. But I found if I think of it more like, like a Looney Tunes or a Tom and Jerry, maybe like a count and mouse chase, then it sounds less nonsensical and more, Oh, Oh, that's kind of a funny thing to do with a piano. Yeah. And some of the really dissonant stuff I compared like horror movie soundtracks, then People can kind of understand then why you'd want it for certain contexts, but th- then they're still like, but I don't want to like listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. But I think also like with the cage piece, it's right on the box, right? Metamorphosis. So every movement, there's an idea that's bam, right out front. And then the next couple of minutes are him just, you know, changing, mutating that idea in some way. Yeah, it's good, for, it's, it's good to just will. challenge your, your conception, your preconceptions of what it should be, because then it just helps you get your thinking out of the box. The next composer, uh, an example we have for you is the French composer Olivier Messiaen and a piece from 1944, uh, Vain Regards, uh, what is it? Uh, let me get the title. Vain Regards sur l'enfant Jésus. Uh, it's, it's 20 looks at the baby Jesus. <laughs> uh, and you have to imagine for a very, very religious person in 1944, you're thinking about revelations, you know? Absolutely. And this is the first point, the next point, I should say, after uh, what we listened to in the 20s of discontinuity because the Second World War happened. We're just emerging uh, or or about to emerge from in, in the last worst of it in 1944. So as a profoundly spiritual and devoted person and someone who survived incarceration in a Nazi labor camp when they occupied France, this place was coming from a powerfully expressive place for Messiaen, but it represents the beginning of the next stage of modernism in music and in musical thinking. Uh, and I, it fascinates me the way you hear the, the ideas of using the piano to create atmosphere and mood are so highly developed in Messiaen's rendering. So here we'll play two examples for you from two different movements of these Varagard by Olivier Messiaen from 1944.
this is a continuation of, I think, ideas he was expressing with his piece before this, the Quartet for the End of Time, which he did, like you said, in a, in a labor camp, where he's thinking about time, the passage of time, and how you can change people's perception of the passage of time, especially with, with music, and how there's something really profound and, and philosophical about that. It's really beautiful music. Like I mentioned, we're in now the second phase of modernism, the second sort of generation of uh, musical artists who participated in this style. And many of them either were directly students of or heavily influenced by Messiaen, including the next two composers we want to share with you, Georgi Ligeti and Karlines Stockhausen. Uh, we have the Musica Reisercata from 1953 is our piece from the decade of the 1950s to share with you. And Ligeti is one of those avant-garde composers, post-World War II avant-garde, as we call them, who studied at the summer program at Darmstadt in Darmstadt, Germany, where Messiaen taught early on and uh, gave us the group of composers that included Ligeti, as well as Stockhausen and uh, Luciano Berrio and Pierre Boulez and many more. Um, but Ligeti's music entered the popular culture in the starting in the late 1960s because of the filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, using some of his music in 2001. And then in his last film, Eyes Wide Shut, he used some of the piano music from this piece, the musical Rai Sarkata, um, uh, the from 1953. What you hear, I think, clearly is Ligeti exploring the piano as a sound maker. So you hear the use of space, uh, the use of the piano as a percussion instrument to make drum-like sounds, uh, and so on. So we'll listen to two excerpts from this 1953 piece. Those two excerpts, to me, show how far this is 
right at 60 years after the Brahms, after our starting point from 1893, how much more free the expressive palette of a composer has become? Because uh, Ligeti here, I think, is really using the sounds the piano can make to be expressive in a way that doesn't have that much to do with how the notes are structured or key centers or melodies or bass lines or anything. It's the instrument as a sonic space and he's playing with it, right? So like in the, the second excerpt, the one I mentioned, many of our listeners may recognize from the movie Eyes Wide Shut, that last Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, playing with notes, you know, seven octaves apart. <laughs> and it's just a two note gesture, right? Clearly, that's not about the notes themselves. It's about the atmosphere it creates, the feeling that it evokes in you as you listen to it, and so on. Um, and and in, in just, you know, a little over half a century, there's been, I think it, it really lays bare what kind of revolutions in musical thinking have taken place by that point. And the way they change how you think about the tools you're using and what they're capable of. Jumping forward to 1961, a piece by Karlein Stockhausen, his piano piece, Klavierstück number nine. And this one is even more radically focused than the ones we've just heard, where he takes one gesture. Does this have any electronics on, or this is just the piano? This is just the piano. It's really interesting because it has, uh, you hear like the sound of the piano, you know, the percussive sound. It's one chord he yeah, makes. Yeah, one chord he's just playing, and then there's this other resonating sound that kind of rises and falls and i'm just kind of curious like how how it's working like how that happened doesn't really make any sense to me (laughs) well he's repeating this idea and a a rhythm in a systematic way but it starts interacting with the resonance is it like something with the the overtones exactly it's playing with the beats and the resonance and stuff so this is a little bit of the stockhausen cleverstück nine Stockhausen was an influence on the Beatles, correct? Absolutely. And as influential for, for his work as an electronic musician, what he did with the early electronics, musical tools, as uh, a composer. Uh, but that excerpt is fascinating because he does that one gesture and he just plays with the ramifications like a like a, you know, a bit stone hitting a still body of water. 
and causing a huge disturbance and splash. And you just watch all that kinetic energy kind of play out as the splash dies down, turns into waves and those turns into ripples and you watch it move out until it goes back to stillness again. And it takes in this instance, about a minute and a half to get back to still uh, in the, and that's the whole excerpt we just played. And then the next thing that happens in the piece is a, a, a new gesture. So also earlier 60s, 1964 in the United States, the composer Morton Feldman was considered a minimalist, but playing with in the same way that his European contemporaries were with very limited materials. So the music he's creating isn't about um, the sounds themselves as in as much as the effect they create. And the, the process behind creating the pieces. And for Feldman and for American minimalists generally, I wouldn't peg it, pigeonhole him as just a minimalist, but I think he's certainly... Uh, yeah, I think to a certain extent, when people hear minimalists, they, they think Terry Riley, Steve Reich, Philip Glass. And I don't think his, if you think those three and then Feldman, you kind of get the wrong idea, right, I think. Right. <laughs> uh, and don't forget Lamont Young, right? Our four yeah, uh-huh. actual full-on minimalists. But uh, I, I think he would belong in that larger group, but it's because... You'll hear in this piece the way he allows the piano to become its own kind of sonic universe, if you will, so that the material itself and the ways it's structured and needs to work aren't defining what's happening expressively. It's, it's in fact, it's been flipped, which is a foundational goal in terms of, uh, you know, expressionism, broadly speaking, in any artistic medium. So this is from 1964, Morton Feldman, Piano Piece. That makes me think of the audio equivalent of those paintings that are just like three squares and like a yellow triangle. And people who are really into art are like, yeah, this is genius. And other people are like, is this my, a, my is kid this a put on? <laughs> yeah, am I being pranked here? And it really is. That's one of the reasons the idea for this episode is so interesting to me because by the time you get to a second manifestation of modernism after world war ii broadly speaking certainly from the early 50s on um some of the art can seem like nonsense right but the feldman if you put yourself in uh, conceptually a place where 
This music is happening around you. It's not a story. It's not something you're following the happening of. But you're sitting in the dark and there are little flashes of different kinds of light that are closer to and further away, different places in your field of vision. And also in these silences, when you're thinking, you know, where's the music? Maybe the anticipation of what's the next sound going to be. Where's it, where's it, can I, I kind of think of when you're doing the vision test, when you get your eyes checked, mm-hmm. and they're going to do the, the puff of air for the glaucoma test, right? And you're like, ah, when are they going to blow the thing? Blow the poof, ah, right? That anticipation, whether it's frustrating or exciting or whatever, is part of the experience of the music. A feeling of suspense, if you will, much like going to see a Hitchcock movie would have been around the same time. That is, I think, a trend that other people throughout the 20th century started to play with more is thinking of silence as a musical material, that negative space thank being you, John Cage. space, you know? Yeah, thank you, John Cage, uh-huh. for that one. I mean, really, for staking it out and articulating that and saying right. mm-hmm. definitively that this is, is as effective and as pregnant as sound is in a musical context. Um, but using that same machine of the piano, I think... By the time you get to Stockhausen, music by Stockhausen, music by Morton Feldman, it is really obvious how our musical, our creative imagination has changed. Uh, Because, I mean, how could it not, right? The world around us had changed so drastically. Uh, Our next example for you is by the American composer George Crumb from 1972, his Macrocosmos a uh, lot of interesting things about this music. It's a nod. The title's a nod to Bela Bartok, whom we heard earlier this episode. We heard some of his music. But uh, George Crumb here is really exploring the piano as just sound machine, timbral palette. How many colors can I get out of this thing? And how many different ways can I manipulate those colors? I wanted to hack the piano. Yeah. Can I make them shiny? Can I make them have a matte finish? Can I give them a sheen? Can I make them streak and smear? And to do it, he did modify one thing about the way the instrument sounds. It's a little asterisk on our rule about uh, this being a constant through the 1900s. He amplified the piano. However... The instrument itself isn't altered. He just wants the audience, all of the listeners, to be able to hear the acoustical phenomena like the pianist can hear them, being right on top of the instrument, on the soundboard, on the resonating space. Or even better, your head inside the piano. Yeah, even a vantage point we can't get to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much like film creates our omniscience in a narrator or something. So he did amplify the piano so that he could put our ears in that space. So we'll play for you uh, an example, two examples from this macrocosmos. It follows, there are 12 movements. He did two books of them. They follow the uh, astrological signs, the zodiac. And so we'll play number one, a bit from number one, which is cancer, and he calls them primeval sounds. And number 11, Gemini, which uh, he says are dream images. They sound very different. Very different. The first excerpt is going to sound like we described in an experimental kind of musical sense. The second one, you'll hear how he's quoting historical older music to explore the same thing. It's not that the music suddenly becomes romantic. He's quoting something well-known and long-existing for the instrument to explore the same kind of acoustical properties and things. Which is a great thing to pair with astrology, trying to take something ancient and making it modern and, you know, 
how that interplay happens. The whole set of pieces is amazing and unexpected. You hear the pianist was using raking across the strings, uh, was using their hand to damp a string so we hear the hammer thump, thump, thump. But that was all just the piano and the pianist. Uh, Like I said, with the amplification to give us this sort of privileged, omniscient perspective for our ear. But other than that, the piano Brahms was playing and writing for. It's cool because I would imagine... For some people, if they've never really looked inside a piano, might be kind of confused by a lot of the sounds. But if you're someone who understands just how you know strings are being hit by a mallet and how that could translate to different ways you can play with that, all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, I can't believe no one thought of this before. Yeah, it's a good point. A lot of folks don't know that the piano, we don't consider it a string instrument because of that. It's, it's strictly speaking a percussion instrument because we classify instruments now by the ways they produce sound. And so the string is vibrating, but it's vibrating because it's struck by a hammer, which makes it a percussion. Which is being instrument. activated by a key or pressing. A key, a lever, a machine the human is pressing, right? Uh, then uh, just a few years later in 1977, but a generation younger, the composer John Adams, American composer John Adams, wrote a short piece for solo piano called China Gates, where he kind of takes the style of minimalism that we mentioned as a developed practice from the 1950s and 60s and sort of fuses it with this, what we hear in the Stockhausen and in the the George Crumb excerpts, the exploration of a piano as an acoustical space. And so in China Gates, he sets up these really beautiful Chord, the chords the well it's a you know, chord for a long time and then you go to another harmony so the harmonic rhythm as we would call it the rate the chords change it's actually really slow but the way the pattern the way he arpeggiates a harmony sets up um a kind of interplay with the way the chord is resonating in the piano with yes. the pedal so, down yeah so it has a, a simple 
underlying structure but complexity in the sound that's interplaying on top when the when it's actually rendered yeah and the sounds happening in the acoustical space of the piano that's where the complexity comes from there's an emergence exactly so the sound the material you're playing plus the way it interacts with the acoustic phenomenon of the piano is a sound machine Mm -hmm. and it's a lovely piece a beautiful piece this is 1977 john adams china gates I think it's important also to note the larger context through the 50s, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where we just heard composers' imagination turn to acoustical properties and that being uh, an element of development, right? Timbre and texture and so on. The tools that were becoming available in a technological sense, uh, musical tools, recording, electronic, and early computer digital tools, uh, even then were nascent. We're, we're all about that, right? When you're working with an early synthesizer or something, you're literally building timbres out of electrical current. You're, you have to compose, you have to create, compose the sounds before you can even use them to behave in certain ways to make music out of them. And this is why we were able to get away from this over-reliance of trying to reconceptualize pitch with serialism that essentially ended up being to some extent, a dead end because people realize there's so many other things you could play with now that no one wanted to be just trapped up in this one thing trying to do that instead of saying, oh, no, there's you can play with rhythm, you can play with timbre, you can create different levels of complexity within your work. Exactly. And the structure doesn't need to be like narrative to be developmental to make sense. We don't have to hear an idea like a melody uh-huh. and hear it go through different permutations or contrasts. You can take, you know, a simple rhythm or a process and feed material into it or etc and so it's again our our basis our unchanging frame of reference of the piano i think lays the ideas bare but it is important to remember what may be stimulating those ideas and how they're kind of getting applied to the piano um and then you can reverse engineer uh, you can work backwards and go okay well let me hear some electronic works you listen to early electronic music from the 50s and 60s you you then have an ear for what they were doing, what they were trying to to explore creatively and how they were developing the tool. As we move into the 1980s, you hear, I think, um, composers who are more bravely setting up their own processes and letting them play out. I think they trust listeners more to be more sophisticated and uh, the music is 
it, it, in some ways it becomes even harder to track because it's more unique to the individual composer than ever. And they don't feel like they have to make their, their references super obvious. They just start taking all these different pieces and bringing it into their own vocabulary. And you're, you're moving it just, yeah, their own vocabulary. You're moving into a place where there had been a dogma about if you wanted to be a composer or, or uh, you know, a certain kind of musician, you had to do things a certain way. And by the 1980s, we'd really started moving out of that, thanks to the work of uh, uh, folks to that point. But you really start uh, seeing that kind of uh, independence bear fruit in terms of I get to build my own language expressively as a musician, as a composer. And so John Carigliano, one of our uh, most played and most influential living American composers, wrote a uh, piano piece in 1985 called Fantasia on an Ostinato. There's a couple notable things about that. The title sounds sort of highfalutin or old-fashioned, but all it really means, Fantasia fantasy, meaning free play, just is, is letting his imagination run wild. And I think it's important to note an ostinato. In music, that means a repeated rhythmic and or melodic pattern. And way back uh, in the early 1900s, like 1913, Rite of Spring, various places, the use of ostinato as a device in creating your unity or structure happens all over the place. Mm -hmm. yeah. But in the 1960s and 70s, it becomes particularly important because of the focus, I think, uh, with the emergence of funk in popular music and its evolution into uh, an influence on hip hop but especially because electronic dance music takes over popular dance music as a style and hip hop becomes emergent as what, what is now the dominant popular musical style. But both of them are based on a beat or a groove in the case of hip hop, literally sampling a drum break and looping it. Uh, in the case of electronic music, sometimes it's just a beat. Yeah, it can really get pulse. get down to just pulse and thinking of that. Yeah, as, this is like the bass ostinato. Like it's what is pulse, it's yeah. a sounding pulse? Uh -huh, it yeah, could so be it's the simplest ostinato, and that's that's really fundamental though because it, but it's all ostinato based music. Yeah, but funk I think, based on a groove, uh -huh. hip hop on a sample, it's and ostinatos. it's it's tribal. Like it's really it goes back to when we used to just get together and make music in drum circles. Like there's something so like in innate about doing that, and that's what everyone started to kind of want to work with is this bringing back of the communal rhythmic musical experience. And what Carigliano intuited and, and you hear it in his music starting in the 1970s, uh, you know, serious classical concert music composer, but also wrote famously the shining, the, not the shining, I'm sorry, altered States won an Oscar for the film score for altered States, but decades later for the film, the red violin. So has done work in more populist mediums. In, Same with know, orientation. Glass coming up. Same with Philip Glass, who, who, with whom we're about to uh, engage. But uh, Carigliano, I think, intuited, and, and you hear it in this piece, uh, that you can take that idea of a groove, a beat, an ostinato, and as long as we can perceive the repetition, the, the loop, mm -hmm. you can do almost anything you want to with it because it's such an easy frame of reference it fills in your to see here. yeah your brain predictive pattern matching kind of thing is what what we want in music we want to be able to predict what's going to happen but not too much and if you're a composer who's working in where i'm creating my own sound world and build my own structures how do you get people to find that familiarity that that to get them to be able to predict what's next even if you want to 
frustrated, right? So, so he uses a device of an ostinato. So for this one, uh, we're going to play uh, uh, four bits for you. Uh, right about a minute in where this ostinato idea reaches its first kind of climax, expressively speaking. And then uh, three other bits, about three minutes in, about seven minutes in, about eight and a half minutes in, where you hear a similar point in the structure of this ostinato, you know, the looping of its development, um, where it reaches a similar climax, but it's different each time. So we're going to play you the first time this moment happens and then three other iterations so you can hear, hopefully, how now 1985, the musical imagination uh, has changed. how you really make use of the full piano like that's how you make it sound like an orchestra just by using the full range of sound and making them all have their own space and utilizing that just incredible range of sound that you can get out of it and composers didn't forget or stop using uh influences and ideas from the popular uh commercial recorded music spheres uh, we have another example from the 1980s this is a short piano piece at philip glass early minimalist Wrote in 1988. Uh, it was a piece he wrote in the studio. It was for in the 1980s. Uh, talk about changing composers' practice. He did a couple of albums where the music was composed to be recorded in the studio to make an album. It was a composer making an album, composed music, but and a, a little bit ironically, like one of them was is an album called Glasswork for this chamber orchestra instrumentation. The album, the recording was so popular that he started getting requests to play it live, and so he had to create sheet music, write the thing down and make it performable live. Uh, and just recently he was awarded the Kennedy Center honor uh-huh. and John Batiste played a piece from Glassworks. Check it out. It's really great. <laughs> so 
This is uh, called the Wichita Vortex Sutra, a piece that he used a few years later in uh, a stage work called the Hydrogen Jukebox that he co-created with the American poet Allen Ginsberg. And so the music is used uh, with a poem read over it in a second version, but the original version is him on piano, quasi-improvisational, but you're going to hear this marriage of obvious sounds from American popular and folk culture with a developmental process, a minimalistic developmental process. The best way I can describe it, let's let you hear. This is Philip Glass, Wichita Vortex Sutra from 1988. I love that piece. You can hear for the first time, 105 years later, started 1893. Here we are, 1988, a composer at the piano returning to a chord progression in a key (laughs) for the first time in any of those examples. The crumb did quote, but in terms of the prime material, the composer wrote, but that material sits in a totally new and different context, right? He's clearly exploiting the acoustical properties of the piano, uh, the space that can be created, the resonance that can be created, uh, the repeated idea, the ostinato idea, that oscillating third of minimalism that particularly in Philip Glass's most minimalist music is omnipresent. And isn't that funny how the guy who brought back tonality was massively successful? In a material sense, yes. <laughs> and lots of people loved his music. <laughs> but but what I think is, is great about this framing we're using with the piano as the constant reference point is that uh, it shows how successful in an artistic and creative sense and how fearless so many of these composers were. And I think probably will make it easier for folks to understand why they struggle to find an audience, even among their their peers of other musicians, other composers. Yeah, it's so funny because they weren't seen as very legitimate at the time, right? Whereas, Unless you were in the tight inner circle of yeah. academia and then they were the only legitimate, but yeah. Yeah, whereas now like they're pretty much everyone knows and loves their work if you're someone who would be into that that kind of thing, you know? Right, it reminds me of the quote by Edgar Varez, a composer we easily could have featured on this episode had he written uh, solo piano music in this way. Uh, you know, or first half of the 20th century American avant-garde. He said, the problem is not that, that as an artist who's like, you know, avant-garde, contemporary or whatever, not that you're ahead of your time. It's that you're very much of your time. The problem is everyone else is kind of behind their own time. So if you're really locked into the now, you do seem weird and alien to a lot of folks because, you know, I mean, like our some 
larger sociology studies have shown. We lock in our creative taste, musical taste in our late teens, early 20s, things like that. But uh, especially, uh, as I hope we're demonstrating here, the pace of change creatively because of the pace of change culturally and, and world events and, and history happening uh, by, the, by the second, uh, that the 20th century was. How could the art be anything other than overwhelming and confusing? And yeah, we've got like four, paradi- four paradigms, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's a yeah, new year, new paradigm. So okay, let's bring this sucker home. We've we've hit a hundred year mark, but I want to we wanted to cross over into the two thousands and into the present day because we can still our common frame of reference is still useful. There's still pianos. There's still pianos, and people still play them, and people still make music for them. Uh, and we could do a whole parallel episode probably uh, to this one if we looked at only popular music, use of piano and popular music over the 20th century too, which maybe we will if we get a strong positive response to this uh, this look. But the last few composers we have for you bring us into the uh, current two generations of younger quote-unquote composers. Uh, Thomas Otis, an English composer who is right at my age, uh, wrote this next piece that we're going to share for you, Visible Darkness, Darkness Visible, in 1992. And what you're going to hear in the next uh, examples, we have uh, uh, five more examples here for you for four more new composers is a real comfort with, like you mentioned, Anthony, making your own sound world and then playing within it. Uh, and so this is uh, a Thomas Otis uh, kind of tragic piece, uh, Darkness Visible. he's really thinking of layers and how he's broken apart the different ideas in there he has that really faint kind of background fluttering sound and then like ringing chimes like bells and then the the baseline underneath it's really cool it's very cinematic is yeah. what what i connect to clearly a person who grew up watching movies and thinking of that uh dimension of uh, musical expression but technically clearly so informed by the post-World War II avant-garde composers we heard, like the Ligeti, right? Just using these percussive hammer strokes to put an idea in the foreground. And like you said, that soft sort of tremolo or trill that was in the background, making it feel like we were in a scene in a, uh, a suspense film or a horror movie almost. Yeah, they're able to now have this huge toolkit of things that they could create greater levels of ex- expression with. It's really cool. And that put us right at the 100-year mark, 1992. We started in 1893. Uh, and I think if you if you want to really have fun, listen to the Brahms, Opus 118. It's the intermezzo number two. Listen, take a couple minutes, listen through that whole piece, that whole movement, and then listen to the whole few minutes of Thomas uh, Ades, A-D-E-S, 
darkness. It's darkness with an E on the end. Visible. Um, and it's the same instrument. It just, it's, it's expressively, it creates, it's used to such profoundly different effect. Not just in my feelings, but like the way it affects my, like my consciousness, like the, you know, to create a feeling of suspense in the way that Otis does in the piece from 1992 is something that Brahms could never have even, like he couldn't have conceived of using the thing he sat on and played on every day, using it that way. So it shows how profoundly our imaginations develop. Uh, okay, so we wanted to cross the line as a little coda or, or tie in a bow on the 21st sucker. century. But yeah, since the 21st century. So we have three pieces from the 2000s. Uh, we have uh, 2000, I'm sorry, four, four. We have 2001, 2003, 2007, and 2015, bringing us up within the last five years even, uh, of, of what, how are composers approaching the piano now? So the first one, 2001, someone we already heard from, John Adams, and a piece called American Berserk. <laughs> I like it because it's coherent and like precise, but there's so much happening that's also really chaotic. So it can be hard to kind of like think of what you should even be listening for as you're listening to it, but then it just kind of washes over you. Yeah, I hear like the the way the dense those chords at the beginning they're loud and percussive, but they're they're dense too, and so as like acoustical phenomena, if you will, they're like crashing into each other inside the sound space of the piano, mm-hmm. and I think he's that's the energy he's setting off, right? It's very maximalist. Yeah, and the chords themselves start to evoke a sort of bluesy gospel, uh, definitely early twentieth century American feel, and it's got enough a rhythm to it to keep you going. Yeah. And then there's that driving thing in the bass. You'd call it a bass line, but it doesn't, I don't think that technically be correct. More of an ostinato in the bass voice. Beam, bomb, beam, bomb, beam, bomb, beam, bomb, bomb. It's just banging over and over again to give us a little bit of a feeling of groove mm-hmm. and grounding. Uh, uh, and so even though it's written on this old instrument, this machine, I don't think it could have been really written much before 2001, given how it's organized and everything that's drawn to make that particular gumbo. Korean composer Unsuk Chen, uh, I think, has an interesting voice, too. This is a piece of hers from 2003 called uh, Just Piano Etudes, but this is number five, Takata. And an old, old term Bach used a lot, meaning simply a technical showpiece, kind of a virtuosic showpiece. Pretty freeform, a little bit stream of consciousness. So the title here, from this piano etude saying just a sort of virtuosic showpiece. And then etude uh, itself means study. And etude itself meaning study intended to develop the player's technical ability mm-hmm. in some way. So 
tells us we're probably in for something fun. But I, but what's the sound world like? 2003, a South Korean woman composer, Unsuk Chen. This is Piano Etudes number five, Takata. out of that like a modern dance kind of performance with that because of how the syncopations are so like a little bit out of whack a little irregular but also following kind of a structure just the way you can it's very it, really cool it's very kinetic very uh kinesthetically suggestive yeah uh if you will uh and i i love the way that she presents that idea right at the front and it's i mean it's boy this has got to be really hard to play the takata is a very apt name but that little flip it flip the really complicated gesture right lets that develop but then second layer, and you mentioned, you've used that word a couple of times, layering, uh -huh, yeah. this stratification, if you will, strata. Here's this idea. She starts developing it a little bit, starts working it, and then it sort of recedes a little bit. And then in the foreground, this bomb, bomb, bing, bomb, this focusing gesture, it's a lot slower and it's, it's uh, more of a groove, right? Mm -hmm. And I agree totally. I could see this music being uh, choreographed. Her music's terrific. Um, and this infusion of a groove a rhythm i think comes from two very different places into our current working generations of composers and it's very much in their dna it's in so much of the music that we hear in any sphere now in the avant-garde folks like stockhausen really exploring the iteration the repetition of a rhythm and what you can can wring out of it but then, obviously, the whole giant collective work in the popular recorded music sphere of groove-based, beat-based music uh, is also very influential. The next piece, 2007, from an American composer, uh, male composer. I mentioned that Unsuk Chen was a woman because all the other composers we'd heard up till now are male. And it's just frustrating because that's the way the medium was in the classical concert music realm, but uh, there, there are a, a rich number, a, a large number of uh, women composers working now who are contributing fantastic things um, uh, to our musical culture and their imaginations, I think, sometimes come up with things I wouldn't expect maybe a male composer to come up with, but that's probably a topic for another time and uh, one that would be fraught with a lot of uh, pitfalls and bad assumptions. But, and it shouldn't be had between two dudes. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely shouldn't be had between two dudes. But um, uh, uh, I, I mentioned it just because to note that Anthony and I were frustrated by the lack of, um, of, of women composers that we had 
to choose from who who were able to develop a career through the 1900s and and, and which is completely notoriety. which is totally different from the popular sphere which had you know you could name yep. dozens you know does especially now where the female artists uh, in multiple roles are really their work is very very dominant um, but uh, uh, two more composers for you to listen to uh, very actively in the thick of their creative work both of them Americans Mason Bates and Missy Mazzoli. Uh, this piece, 2007, from Mason Bates, is called White Lies for Lomax. You might notice a nod for to Dr. Seuss in the title, but this idea of groove and being groove-based is evident throughout a lot of his work, and you'll hear it here in this work for solo piano from 2007. played some Mason Bates back when I was a student that you conducted and it's really some of the most fun stuff that that I got to play while in college it's it's so appealing to musicians you know he's really writing music I think for you know musicians that and non-musicians can love too but that are really just fun to play for the people playing it and in the excerpt we just heard it's such a humorous to me and fun in a terrific way fusion because Mason does a lot of work in electronic and the electronic realm and his orchestra works fuse that uh, famously do so. But uh, you hear this like bluesy groove lick the piano plays. Right. But then he like scores it on the piano and gives it this acoustical space like Berg or Schoenberg, like the, the mm -hmm. strictest German expressionist composer might have writing a tone color melody. Those of you who might have taken music history might remember that wonderful mouthful of a term, Klangfarben melody. This uh, trying to the shifting tone color make that your main emphasis, not the the pitches or or how the pitches are organized. But uh, it's just <laughs> such this weird fusion that only the 21st century, I think, ultimately could have produced. And you hear the same kind of thing in this last piece that we're going to share with you from 2015 by Missy Mazzoli, a map of laughter.
that's the kind of piece that even if you're someone who think you don't like like classical music is if you see it live it's it's so appealing because there's such a force to it and I love the idea, it makes me giggle, that any of these pieces we've covered in this episode, the journey of this episode, if we were, were able to drop the pianist with a time machine into the room with Brahms in 1893 when he finished that intermezzo, you could play any of these pieces, mm-hmm. but I, there's a threshold you'd reach really quickly where somebody like Brahms would just be very, very confused <laughs> by what you were using the instrument to do. Like what you were even exploring. What's the idea here? Um, But I love that for me, it really turns a focus knob. Like if you want to approach a composer like Georgi Ligeti or even Charles Ives, whose music is really, I mean, it's off put. It's like trying to read Ulysses. You know, I know a lot of people have tried to read that novel. You need kind of an (laughs) on-ramp. I don't know anybody who's really finished it, you know, successfully, unless you do it with the companion, like a read, you know, uh, a companion that helps you understand it. Or you're a literature major. (laughs) And it's even a little bit like diving into, you know, uh, a David Lynch movie, like watching Twin Peaks without, Mm. you know, a film person there to go. Not, yeah, you know, or uh, Mulholland Drive is what I really think of the movie. Mm -hmm. They're really just like, what? Um, but hopefully this help will help you, our listeners, uh, provide a little bit of a guide or a roadmap to the many manifestations of modernism we experience through the 20th century and the ways that the world's so dynamically changing and continuing to change. Talk about the paradigm shifts hadn't stopped. Um, and how our, our best artists, our best musicians reify that, make it audible and perceptible to us in their work um, by, by going to a medium that is essentially unchanging for quite a, a period of time, like the piano, I think makes it more evident. And hopefully, uh, you know, you, if you've made it to this point in the episode, you've had that experience too. And hopefully we'll have more in a hundred years. <laughs> As always, uh, our uh, material is all posted online at loosefilter.com, including the full playlist with links to where you can find this music. Uh, we as well have included links to some indis- additional uh, articles and, and things that we think you might find interesting. You can also find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash loosefilter or wherever fine podcasts are available, like iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you can connect an RSS feed. You will be able to subscribe to the podcast. We will be back next week with another episode that hopefully will be less of a deep dive than this one. This one was a little dense, but we we, we, uh, we were really excited about Went it. Went so to deep. Share it with you. So deep! Uh, but anyway, thanks for listening. Any feedback is always welcome at loosefilter at gmail.com. See you next week.